Thus did Jehovah most tenderly silence his fears and reassure his heart. With the verses which have been before us, we like to link those words of Christ to his apostles. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. John 15.15 Indicative of the intimate fellowship they enjoyed with him. Thus it was with Elijah. The Lord of hosts had condescended to make known unto him things to come, which certainly had not been the case if he were estranged from him. It was like what we read of in Genesis 18.17, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? No, he did not, for Abraham was the friend of God. James 2.23 Blessed indeed is it to see how the Lord had restored Elijah's soul to the most intimate communion with himself, recovering him from his gloom and reinstating him in his service. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Saphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. Verse 19 Here is good evidence that the Lord had restored the soul of his servant. Elijah raised no objection, made no delay, but responded promptly. Obedience must ever be the test of our relations with God. If ye love me, keep my commandments. John 14:15. In this instance, it involved a difficult journey of some 160 miles, the distance between Horeb and Abel-Mahola, verse 16, see also 4:12. Most of it across the desert. But when God commissions, it is for us to comply. There was no jealous resentment that another should fill his place. As soon as Elisha was encountered, Elijah cast his mantle upon him indicative of his investiture with the prophetic office and a sign of friendship that he would take him under his care and tuition. So indeed the young farmer understood it, as is evident from his response, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. Verse 20. The Spirit of God moved him to accept the call, so that he at once relinquished all his worldly expectations. See how easily the Lord can stir men up to undertake his work in the face of great discouragements. Had he consulted with flesh and blood, he would have been very unwilling to be in Elijah's situation, when thus hunted in those dangerous times, and when there was nothing but persecution to be expected. Yet Elisha chose to be a servant to a prophet, rather than a master of a large farm, and cheerfully resigned all for God. The prayer of divine grace can remove every objection and conquer every prejudice. Robert Simpson And he said unto him, Go back, for what have I done to thee? Verse 20 Very beautiful is this. There was no self-importance, but rather total self-renunciation. Like John the Baptist, who came in his spirit, Luke 1.17, he was sent to usher in another, and his language here was tantamount to he must increase, I must decrease. Blessed humility. And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Verse 21. What a lovely finishing touch to the picture. Certainly Elisha did not look upon Elijah as one who had been set aside by the Lord. 
What comfort for the Tishbite now to have for his companion one of so dutiful and affectionate disposition, and what a privilege for this young man to be under so eminent a tutor. And what is the next reference to him in Scripture? This, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Go down to meet Ahab the king of Israel. 1 Kings 21, verse 17 and 18. How completely that disposes of the popular idea that God had discarded him from his service. Plainly, he had been thoroughly reinstated and was back again on the same old terms with his master. That is why we have entitled this chapter, Elijah's Recovery. Chapter 29, Naboth's Vineyard. The contents of 1 Kings 20 have presented quite a problem to most of those who have written thereon. It opens with the statement, And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his hosts together, and there were thirty and two kings with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria, and warred against it. So confident of victory was he that he sent messengers to Ahab, saying, Thy silver and thy gold is mine, thy wives also and thy children. Verse 3 Having seen something of the accumulated and aggravated sins of Ahab, we might well suppose the Lord would give success to this enterprise of Ben-Hadad's and use him to humiliate and punish Ahab and his apostate consort. But this expectation is not realized. Strange as that appears, our surprise is greatly increased when we learn that a prophet came unto Ahab, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Verse 13 In the immediate sequel we behold the fulfillment of that prediction. The king of Israel went out and smote the horses and chariots and slew the Syrians with a great slaughter. Verse 21 Thus the victory was not with Ben-Hadad, but with Ahab. Nor does the above incident stand alone, for the next thing we read of is, And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said unto him, Go, strengthen thyself and mark, and see what thou doest. For at the return of the year the king of Syria will come up against thee. Verse 21 This seems passing strange, that the Lord should come to the help of such a one as Ahab. Again the prediction was fulfilled, for Ben-Hadad came with such immense forces that the army of Israel appeared like two little flocks of kids, but the Syrians filled the country. Verse 27 Once more a prophet came to Ahab, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys, therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 28 the outcome was that the children of Israel slew of the Syrians a hundred thousand footmen in one day. Verse 29 But because he allowed Ben-Hadad to go free, another prophet announced unto Ahab, Thy life shall go for his life. Verse 42 God's time to destroy Ahab and all who followed him in idolatry had not yet come. It was through Hazael and not Ben-Hadad the divine vengeance was to be wrought. But if the hour of retribution had not then arrived, why was Ben-Hadad permitted thus to menace the land of Samaria? Ah, uh, it is the answer to that question which casts light upon the above problem. The day of the Lord is deferred because God is long-suffering to his elect, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 and 10 Not until Noah and his family were safely in the ark 
did the windows of heaven open and pour down their devastating flood. Not until Lot was delivered from Sodom did fire and brimstone fall upon it. I cannot do anything, said the destroying angel, till thou become hither. Genesis 19.22 And so it was here, not until Elijah and his helper had completed their work, not until all the seven thousand whom Jehovah reserved for himself had been called, would the work of judgment be effected. Following upon the account of Elisha's call to the ministry, the inspired narrative supplies us with no description of the activities in which they engaged. Yet we may be sure that they redeemed the time. Probably in distant parts of the land they sought to instruct the people in the worship of Jehovah, opposing the prevailing idolatry and general corruption, laboring diligently, though quietly, to effect a solid reformation. It would seem that, following the example of Samuel, 1 Samuel 10, verses 5 through 10, and chapter 19, verse 20, they established schools here and there for fitting young men into the prophetic office, instructing them in the knowledge of God's law, and preparing them to become expounders of it unto the people, and also to lead in psalmody, an important service indeed. We base this view on the mention of the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel and at Jericho, 2 Kings 2, verse 3 and 5. Thus it was that Elijah and Elisha were able to proceed for a year or two unmolested in their work, for being engaged in defending himself and his kingdom from powerful enemies, Ahab was too fully occupied to interfere with them. How wondrous are God's ways! Kings and their armies are but pawns to be moved here and there as he pleases. In what has been before us we may see what varied means the Lord employs to protect his servants from those who would injure them. He knows how to ward off the assaults of their enemies, who would oppose them in their pious efforts to be good. He can make all things smooth and secure for them, that they may proceed without annoyance in discharging the duties which he has assigned them. The Lord can easily fill the heads and hands of their opponents with such urgent business and solicitations that they have enough to do to take care of themselves without harassing his servants in their work. When David and his men were hard-pressed in the wilderness of Maon, and it appeared they were doomed, there came a messenger unto Saul, saying, Hasten thee and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Wherefore Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. 1 Samuel 23, verse 27 and 28. How incapable we are of determining why God permits one nation to rise up against another, against this one rather than that. The two prophets continued their work in preaching to the people and instructing their younger brethren for some time. And in view of the promise in 1918, we may conclude the blessing of the Lord rested upon their labors and that not a few were converted. Gladly would they have remained in this quiet and happy occupation, only too glad to escape the notice of the court. But the ministers of God are not to expect a smooth and easy life. They may be thus indulged for a brief season, especially after they have been engaged in some hard and perilous service. Yet they must hold themselves in constant readiness to be called forth from their tranquil employment to fresh conflicts and severer duties, which may try their faith and demand all their courage. So it was now with Elijah. A fresh trial awaited him, a real ordeal, nothing less than being required to confront Ahab again, and this time pronounce his doom. 
but before considering the same, we must look at that which occasioned it. And he laid him down on his bed, and turned away his face, and would eat no bread. 1 Kings 21.4 The reference is unto Ahab. Here lay the king of Israel in a room of the palace, in a fit of dejection. What had occasioned it? Had some invader overcome his army? No, his soldiers were still flushed with the victory over the Syrians. Had his false prophets suffered another massacre? No, the worship of Baal had now recovered from the terrible disaster of Carmel. Had his royal consort been smitten down by the hand of death? No, Jezebel was still very much alive, about to lead him into further evil. What then had brought about his melancholy? The context tells us. Adjoining the royal residence was a vineyard owned by one of his subjects. A whim suddenly possessed the king that this vineyard must become his, so that it might be made an attractive extension to his own property, and he was determined to obtain it at all costs. The wealthy are not satisfied with their possessions, but are constantly lusting after more. Ahab approached Naboth, the owner of this vineyard, and offered to give him a better one for it, or to purchase it for cash. Apparently that was an innocent proposal. In reality it was a subtle temptation. The land shall not be sold forever, outright, for the land is mine, Leviticus 25:23. So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers, Numbers 36:7. Thus it lay not within the lawful power of Naboth to dispose of his vineyard. But for that, there could have been no harm in meeting the equitable offer of Ahab. Nay, it had been discourteous, even churlish, to refuse his sovereign. But however desirous Naboth might be of granting the king's request, he could not do so without violating the divine law, which expressly forbade a man's alienating any part of the family inheritance. Thus a very real and severe test was now presented to Naboth. He had to choose between pleasing the king and displeasing the king of kings. There are times when the believer may be forced to choose between compliance with human law and obedience to the divine law. The three Hebrews were faced with that alternative when it was demanded that they should bow down and worship an image set up by Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 3, verse 14 and 15. Peter and John were confronted with a similar situation when the Sanhedrin forbade them to preach any more in the name of Jesus. Acts 4.18 When the government orders any of God's children to work seven days in the factories, they are being asked to disobey the divine statute, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. While rendering to Caesar the things which Caesar may justly require, under no circumstances must we fail to render unto God those things which he demands of us. And if we should be bidden to rob God, our duty is plain and clear. The inferior law must yield to the higher. Loyalty to God takes precedence over all other considerations. The examples of the three Hebrews and the apostles leave no room for doubt on this point. How thankful we should be that the laws of our country so rarely conflict with the law of God. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. 21.3 He started back with horror from such a proposal, looking upon it with alarm as a temptation to commit a horrible sin. Naboth took his stand on the written word of God and refused to act contrary thereto, 
even when solicited to do so by the king himself. He was one of the seven thousand whom the Lord had reserved unto himself, a member of the remnant according to the election of grace. Hereby do such identify themselves, standing out from the compromisers and temporizers. A thus saith the Lord is final with them. Neither monetary inducements nor threats of punishment can move them to disregard it. Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. Acts 4.19 Is their defense when browbeaten by the powers that be? Settle it in your mind, my reader. It is no sin, no wrong, to defy human authorities if they should require of you anything which manifestly clashes with the law of the Lord. On the other hand, the Christian should be a pattern to others of a law-abiding citizen, so long as God's claims upon him be not infringed. Ahab was greatly displeased by Naboth's refusal, for in the thwarting of his desire his pride was wounded, and so vexed was he to meet with this denial that he sulked like a spoiled child when his will is crossed. The king so took to heart his disappointment that he became miserable, took to his bed, and refused nourishment. What a picture of the poor rich! Millionaires and those in high office are not to be envied, for neither material wealth nor worldly honors can bring contentment to the heart. Solomon proved that. He was permitted to possess everything the natural man craved, and then found it all to be nothing but vanity and vexation of spirit. Is there not a solemn warning here for each of us? How we need to heed that word of Christ. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Luke 12.15 Coveting is a being dissatisfied with the portion God has given me, and lusting after something which belongs to my neighbor. Inordinate desires always lead to vexation, unfitting us to enjoy what is ours. But Jezebel his wife came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? And he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else, if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. Verses 5 and 6. How easy it is to misrepresent the most upright. Ahab made no mention of Naboth's conscientious grievance for not complying with his request but speaks of him as though he had acted only with insubordination and obstinacy. On hearing that statement, Jezebel at once revealed her awful character. Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise, and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry, and I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth. Verse 7 As Matthew Henry expressed it, under pretense of comforting her afflicted husband, she feels his pride and passion, blowing the coals, of his corruptions. She sympathized with this unlawful desire, strengthened his feeling of disappointment, tempted him to exercise an arbitrary power, and urged him to disregard the rights of another and defy the law of God. Are you going to allow a subject to balk you? Be not so squeamish. Use your royal power. Instead of grieving over a repulse, revenge it. The most diabolical stratagem was now planned by this infamous woman in order to wrest the inheritance of Naboth from him. First, she resorted to forgery, for we are told she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city, dwelling with Naboth. Verse 8. 
Second, she was guilty of deliberate hypocrisy. Proclaim a fast. Verse 9, so as to convey the impression that some horrible wickedness had been discovered, threatening the city with divine judgment unless the crime were expiated. History contains ample proof that the vilest crimes have often been perpetrated under the cloak of religion. Third, she drew not the line at out-and-out perjury, bribing men to testify falsely, set Naboth on high among the people, under color of giving him a fair trial by legal prosecution, and set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king. Verse 10. Thus even in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. Ecclesiastes 3.16 There was a woman who sowed sin with both hands. She not only led Ahab deeper into iniquity, but she dragged the elders and nobles of the city into the mire of her devil-inspired crime. She made the sons of Belial, the false witnesses, even worse than they were before. She became both a robber and a murderess, filching from Naboth both his good name and heritage. The elders and nobles of Israel were base enough to carry out her orders. Sure sign was this that the kingdom was ripe for judgment. When those in high places are godless and conscienceless, it will not be long ere the wrath of God falls on those over whom they preside. At the instigation of those nobles and elders, Naboth was carried forth out of the city and stoned with stones that he died. Verse 13. His sons also suffering a similar fate. Second Kings 9.26 That the entail might be cut off. Let it be well attended to that this unprincipled woman, so full of limitless ambition and lust of power, is not only a historical personage, but the predictive symbol of a nefarious and apostate system. The letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 supply a prophetic outline of the history of Christendom. That of Thyatira, which portrays Romanism, makes mention of that woman Jezebel. 2.20 And striking are the parallels between this queen and the monstrous system which has its headquarters at the Vatican. Jezebel was not a Jewess, but a heathen princess, and Romanism is not a product of Christianity, but of paganism. Scholars tell us her name has a double meaning, according to its Zidonian and Hebrew significations, a chaste virgin, which is what Rome professes to be, and a dunghill, which Rome is in God's sight. She reigned in power as Israel's queen, Ahab being merely her tool. Kings are the puppets of Rome. She set up an idolatrous priesthood, she slew the Lord's servants. She employed dishonest and fiendish methods to obtain her ends. She met with a terrible end. As Jezebel was a prophetic symbol of that satanic system known as the papacy, Naboth was a blessed type of the Lord Jesus. First he possessed a vineyard, so also did Christ, Matthew 21:33. Second, as Naboth's vineyard was desired by one who had no respect for God's law, so was Christ. Matthew 21:38. Third, each was tempted to disobey God and part with his inheritance. Matthew 4:9. Fourth, each refused to heed the voice of the tempter. Fifth, each was falsely accused by those who sought his death. Sixth, each was charged with blaspheming God and the king. Matthew 26:65 and Luke 23:1 and 2. Seventh, each was put to death by violent hands. Eighth, each was slain outside the city, Hebrews 13, verse 12 through 14. 
Ninth, the murderers of each were charged with their crime, 1 Kings 21.19 and Acts 2, verse 22 and 23. Tenth, the murderers of each were destroyed by divine judgment, 1 Kings 21, verses 19 through 23 and Matthew chapter 21, verse 41 and also chapter 22, verse 7. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Verses 15 and 16. Jezebel was permitted to carry out her vile scheme, and Ahab to acquire the coveted vineyard. By his action he testified his approval of all that had been done, and thus became sharer of its guilt. There is a class of people who refuse personally to commit a crime, yet scruple not to use their employees and hired agents to do so, and then take advantage of their villainies to enrich themselves. Let such conscienceless rascals and all who consider themselves shrewd in sharing unrighteous gains know that in God's sight they are partakers of the sins of those who did the dirty work for them and will yet be punished accordingly. Many another since the days of Ahab and Jezebel has been allowed to reach the goal of his lusts even at the price of fraud, lying, dishonesty, and cruel bloodshed. But in due course each shall discover that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment. Job 20, verse 5. Meanwhile, the Lord God had been a silent spectator of the whole transaction with respect to Naboth. He knew its atrocity, however disguised by the impious semblance of religion and law. And he is infinitely superior to kings and dictators, so he is qualified to call them to account. And as he is infinitely righteous, he will execute judgment upon them without respect to persons. Scarcely had that horrible crime been committed than Ahab is reckoned with. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he is gone down to possess it. And thou shalt say unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. Verses 17-19 Here was the prophet's ordeal, to confront the king, charge him with his wickedness, and pronounce sentence upon him in God's name. Chapter 30 The Sinner Found Out and it came to pass, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. 1 Kings 21, verse 16. The coveted object, see verse 2, should now be seized. Its lawful owner was dead, brutally murdered by Ahab's acquiescence. And being king, who was there to hinder him enjoying his ill-gotten gain? Picture him delighting himself in his new acquisition, planning how to use it to best advantage, promising himself much pleasure in this extension of the palace grounds. To such lengths are men allowed to go in their wickedness that at times onlookers are made to wonder if there be such a thing as justice, if after all might be not right. 
Surely, if there were a God who loved righteousness and possessed the power to prevent flagrant unrighteousness, we should not witness such grievous wrongs inflicted upon the innocent and such triumphing of the wicked. Ah, that is no new problem, but one which has reoccurred again and again in the history of the world, a world which lieth in the wicked one. It is one of the mystery elements arising out of the conflict between good and evil. It supplies one of the severest tests of our faith in God and his government on this earth. Ahab's entering into possession of Naboth's vineyard reminds us of a scene described in Daniel 5. There we behold another king, Belshazzar, surrounded by the nobility of his kingdom, engaged in a great feast. He gives orders that the gold and silver vessels which his father had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem should be brought to him. His commandment was obeyed, and the vessels were filled with wine, his wives and concubines drinking from them. Think of it, the sacred utensils of Jehovah's house being put to such a use. How passing strange that a worm of the dust should be suffered to go to such fearful lengths of presumption and impiety. But the Most High was neither ignorant of nor indifferent unto such conduct, nor can a man's rank exempt him from or provide him any protection against the divine wrath when God is ready to exercise it. There was none in Samaria who could prevent Ahab's taking possession of Naboth's vineyard, and there was none in Babylon who could hinder Belshazzar desecrating the sacred vessels of Israel's temple. But there was one above who could and did bring each of them to judgment. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Ecclesiastes 8.11 Since retribution does not promptly overtake evildoers, they harden their hearts still further, becoming increasingly reckless, supposing that judgment will never fall upon them. Therein they err, for they are but treasuring up unto themselves wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 2.5 Note well that word revelation. The righteous judgment of God is now more or less in abeyance, but there is set a time, an appointed day, when it shall be made fully manifest. The divine vengeance comes slowly, yet it comes none the less surely. Nor has God left himself without plain witness of this. Throughout the course of this world's history he has, every now and then, given a clear and public proof of his righteous judgment by making an example of some notorious rebel and evidencing his abhorrence of him in the sight of men. He did so with Ahab, with Belshazzar, and with others since then, and though in the great majority of instances the heavens may be silent and apparently impervious, yet those exceptions are sufficient to show the heavens do rule and should enable the wronged to possess their souls in patience. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it. Verses 17 and 18 A living, righteous, and sin-hating God has observed the wickedness to which Ahab had been a willing party and determined to pass sentence upon him, employing none other than the stern Tishbite as his mouthpiece. In connection with matters of less moment, junior prophets had been sent to the king a short time before. Chapter 20, verses 13, 22, and 28. But on this occasion, none less than the father of the prophets was deemed a suitable agent. It called for a man of great courage 
and undaunted spirit to confront the king, charging him with his horrid crime and denouncing sentence of death upon him in God's name. Who so well qualified as Elijah for this formidable and perilous undertaking? Herein we may perceive how the Lord reserves the hardest tasks for the most experienced and mature of his servants. Peculiar qualifications are required for special and important missions, and for the development of those qualifications a rigid apprenticeship has to be served. Alas, that these principles are so little recognized by the churches of today. But let us not be misunderstood at this point. It is not natural endowments, intellectual powers, and educational polish we make reference to. It was vain for David to go forth against the Philistine giant clad in Saul's armor. He knew that, and so discarded it. No, it is spiritual graces and ministerial gifts of which we speak. It was strong faith and the boldness it imparts which this severe ordeal called for. Faith not in himself, but in his master. Strong faith, for no ordinary had sufficed. And that faith had been tried and disciplined, strengthened and increased in the school of prayer and on the battlefield of experience. In the wilds of Gilead, in the loneliness of Cherith, also in Zarephath, the prophet had dwelt much in the secret place of the Most High, had learned to know God experimentally, had proved his sufficiency. It was no untried novice that Jehovah called upon to act as his ambassador on this solemn occasion, but one who was strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. On the other hand, we must be careful to place the crown where it properly belongs and ascribe unto God the honor of furnishing and sustaining his servants. We have nothing but what we have received, 1 Corinthians 4.7, and the strongest are as weak as water when he withdraws his hand from them. He who calls us must also equip, and extraordinary commissions require extraordinary endowments, which the Lord alone can impart. Tarry ye in Jerusalem, said Christ to the apostles, until ye be endowed with power from on high. Luke 24:49. Behold, sinners need to be boldly reproved, but such firmness and courage must be sought from God. Said he to another of his prophets, All the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces, and thy forehead strong against their foreheads. Harder than flint have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks. Ezekiel 3, verses 7-9 through 9. Thus if we behold Elijah complying promptly with this call, it was because he could say, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of judgment, and of might, to declare unto Jacob, Ahab, his transgression. Micah 3.8 Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it. Ahab was not in his palace, but God knew where he had gone, and the business with which he would be engaged. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.3 Nothing can be concealed from him. Ahab might pride himself that none should ever reprove him for his diabolical conduct, and that now he could enjoy his spoils without hindrance. But sinners, whether of the lowest or the highest rank, are never secure. Their wickedness ascends before God, and he often sends after them when they least expect it. Let none flatter themselves with impunity 
Because they have succeeded in their iniquitous schemes, the day of reckoning is not far distant, even though it should not overtake them in this life. If these lines should be read by one who is far from home, no longer under the eyes of loved ones, let him know that he is still under the observation of the Most High. Let that consideration deter him from sinning against him and against his neighbor. Stand in awe of God's presence. Let some fearful sentence from him be pronounced upon you and be brought home to your conscience with such power that you will be a terror to yourself and to all around you. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. Verse 19 With no smooth and soothing message was the prophet now sent forth. It was enough to terrify himself. What then must it have meant to the guilty Ahab? It proceeded from him who is king of kings and lord of lords, the supreme and righteous governor of the universe, whose omniscient eye is witness to all events, and whose omnipotent arm shall arrest and punish all evildoers. It was the word of him who declares, Can any hide himself in secret places that I should not see him? saith the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth? Jeremiah 23:24. For his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Job 34, verse 21 and 24. It was a word of denunciation, bringing to light the hidden things of darkness. It was a word of accusation, boldly charging Ahab with his crimes. It was a word of condemnation, making known the awful doom which should surely overtake the one who had blatantly trampled upon the divine law. It is just such messages which our degenerate age calls for. It is the lack of them which has brought about the terrible condition which the world is now in. Mealy-mouthed preachers deceive the fathers, and now their children have turned their backs on the churches. Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord is gone forth in fury, even a grievous whirlwind. It shall fall grievously upon the head of the wicked. Jeremiah 23:19. The figure is an awful one. A whirlwind uproots trees, sweeps away houses, and leaves death and destruction in its wake. Who among God's people can doubt that such a whirlwind is now going forth? The anger of the Lord shall not return until he have executed, until he have performed the thoughts of his heart in the latter days ye shall consider it perfectly. Chapter 23, verse 20. And why? What is the root cause thereof? This. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Verse 21. False prophets, preachers, never called of God, who uttered lies in his name. Verse 25. Men who rejected the divine law, ignored the divine holiness, remain silent about divine wrath. Men who filled the churches with unregenerate members and then amused them with speculations upon prophecy. It was false prophets who wrought such havoc in Israel, who had corrupted the throne and called down upon the land the sore judgment of God. And throughout the past century the false prophets have corrupted Christendom. As far back as fifty years ago, Spurgeon lifted up his voice and used his pen in denouncing the downgrade movement in the churches, and withdrew his tabernacle from the Baptist Union. After his death, things went rapidly from bad to worse, 
And now a whirlwind of the Lord is sweeping away the flimsy structures of the religious world erected. Everything is now in the melting pot, and only the genuine gold will survive the fiery trial. And what can the true servants of God do? Lift up their voices, cry aloud and spare not. Isaiah 58.1 Do as Elijah did, fearlessly denounce sin in high places. A pleasant message to deliver? No, far from it. A message likely to be popular with the hearers? No, the very reverse. But a message sorely needed and criminally neglected. Did the Lord Jesus preach a sermon in the temple on the love of God while its sacred precincts were being made a den of thieves? Yet this is what thousands of those who pose as his servants have been doing for the last two or three generations. With flaming eye and scourge in hand, the Redeemer drove out from his father's house the traffickers who defiled it. Those who were the true servants of Christ refused to use carnal methods for adding numbers of nominal professors to their membership. Those who were the true servants of Christ proclaimed the unchanging demands of a holy God, insisted on the enforcing of scriptural discipline, and resigned their pastorates when their flocks rebelled. The religious powers that be were glad to see the back of them, while their ministerial brethren, so far from seeking to strengthen their hands, did all they could to injure them and cared not if they starved to death. But those servants of Christ were few in number, a negligible minority. The great bulk of pastors were hirelings, time servers, holders of an easy and lucrative job at any price. They carefully trimmed their sails and deliberately omitted from their preaching anything which would be distasteful unto their ungodly hearers. The people of God in their congregations were famished, though few of them dared to take their pastors to task following the line of least resistance. And the very passage from which we have quoted above declares, But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Jeremiah 23, verse 22. But they did not, and therefore a whirlwind of the Lord is gone forth in fury, even a grievous whirlwind. Can we wonder at it? God will not be mocked. It is the churches who are responsible for it, and there is no denomination, no party, no circle of fellowship that can plead innocent. And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? Verse 20. With what consternation must the king have beheld him? The prophet would be the last man he wished or expected to see, believing that Jezebel's threat had frightened him away so that he would be troubled by him no more. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.